You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Serena Valentino on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Cold Hearted, and this is such a fun book. This is – I think that – this is going to be a book that you need to have uh, in in your to be read pile, and then you are going after reading this book. You're going to want to go out and seek out all of the others that Serena has done as well. And I think we're going to talk all about that today. Welcome to the show, Serena. Oh, thank you, Hank. I'm so happy to join you today. I'm excited to have you. Um, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, "What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?" Mm. You know, that's it's kind of a sad tale, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, when I was I, I grew up um, uh, dyslexic, you know, so. Me uh, too. So, uh, yes. And so I think I, I think I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think I could because, you know, of my struggles with dyslexia. So, um, I mean, ever since I was younger, I, w- I wanted to be a writer, but I just didn't have faith in myself that I could. So I pursued a lot of other creative, you know, avenues, like I wanted to sing and I went to school to teach theater and I did a lot of, you know, stage plays. I did musical theater and things like that. And I loved it, um, but I didn't love it as much as I until I finally had the courage to sit down and, and write my first story. And um, I'm so glad that I did. And I'm glad that I, I gave myself that chance and, and I realized that, you know, that it was something that I was capable of doing. Did did having dyslexia um, discourage you from reading and for from, you know, partaking in other things, things that other kids were doing? And did you ever feel isolated and, and kind of distanced from, you know, the, the normal things that kids should should be doing? You know, it's interesting because it didn't it didn't interfere so much with reading. Um, And um, I and my father was always a big advocate for reading. And he had us like, you know, I grew up in the 80s, you know, so we we had all these different like cool book clubs. And so we had books like being delivered to the house all the time. So I was like a voracious reader from a young age. Um, the problem with the, the, I mean, I do have issues sometimes like missing, you know, mixing, you know, letters up when I'm reading, but it's more so when I'm writing and when I'm, and when I'm typing. So thank goodness I have a fantastic editor, right? Because the, the, I mean, the, the, the more tired I am, the, the more prevalent the dyslexia is. Um, but you know, when you live with something like that for the, you know, your entire life, you learn, you know, you learn how to cope and your brain starts to self-correct and, and you being dyslexic, you understand what I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's so funny that the dyslexia doesn't bother me so much in writing. Um, it, well, let me, let me preface that. Um, it does, if I'm, if I'm having one of those days where writing is a chore and, and, um, I think someone as prolific a writer as you probably understand what I'm saying, you know, some days when you sit down to write, you, 
you're forcing the words and it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those days where I'm writing because I am a writer and this is what I'm supposed to do. And then there are other days where you kind of hit that flow state and the words are just pouring out and, and, and everything is good in the world and, and the story is alive and you're just chasing the story. Those right. days I don't have so much problem. It's the, it's the days where I'm, I'm having to kind of determine myself to do it. Those are where I struggle. But the the biggest breakthrough I had as a reader with dyslexia was comic books uh, when yeah. I was a kid. And and I know you have some standing uh, in the in the comics uh, arena. Did 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 comics uh, help you, or did, what what was your experience with discovering that medium? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's how I how I started my career, and I think. I think like starting my career in writing comics, it, it felt a little, you know, maybe felt a little less daunting, you know, because it's such a, a such a visual, such a visual medium. Um, and yeah, it, it certainly it certainly was a help. But I say now, which is, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, when people ask, you know, which is the most challenging of the two mediums, like, you know, writing for comics or writing novels. I think writing for comics is, is actually more challenging than than writing a novel because there's so much more involved in writing a comic book and you have so much less space in which to write it. You really do. And, and it, you definitely depend on the collaboration. If you, if you uh, are not one of the, the very rare people who, uh, you know, write the script and draw uh, the panels, it, you know, if, if you're not that person, then you're depending on your collaboration with a, with an artist. And, and that has to be daunting, just, you know, getting your vision across to this person so that they can make it come alive. That that's gotta be you know, nerve wracking. Well, it's, it's not so much nerve wracking is just challenging. And I, you know, I used to, I used to teach a, a comic book script writing class. And one of the things that I used to have my students do was watch um, silent films I'm a huge silent film buff, and I think that that's one of the best places to see visual storytelling, right? And 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 so I would I would make I would make my students watch like silent films, and then I would have them you know write what the panel progressions would you know would be, and 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 just you know, like you know pretend like you're describing these scenes like to an artist. Um, but yeah, I mean that's part of the process that I enjoy most quite frankly. And it's one of the things that I enjoy a lot in, in writing my novels too, is, is describing, you know, the, you know, the areas in which these characters are inhabiting, you know, or, you know, building a world around the, you know, a building a world around these characters. I think, you know, when you write for comics, you're, you're writing for the artist, you're writing for the letter and for the colorist and, you know, for the editor and yourself and the reader. Um, it, it's a lot and it, it is a collaborative process and that's part of the process that makes it so exciting, you know, seeing, seeing those words come to life and illustrated by, you know, an incredible artist that you're working with. Um, I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite mediums in, in, in which to write. Um, and I, I mean, I love writing for novels too, but novels are easier for me, I think, because you can just do a lot of things in novels that you can't do in comics or you can do them, but you can't do them as easily. You know, I can have a character thinking about her past for like three chapters if I wanted right. to. I can have people sitting there speaking to each other at a kitchen table. And I, I mean, I can do that in comics, but it might not be as dynamic. You know, you don't want to see talking heads on, you know, in a comic book for 32 pages. You know, it's it's not right. gonna be, it's it's not going to be that exciting. You know what I mean? So that's why I think that writing for comics is a little bit more is a little bit more challenging. You know, in writing, you know, writing for 
for novels, I can do whatever I want. I can skip around in time, you know, I can change like points of view. There's a lot more freedom in writing novels than there are there is writing for comics. And that's why I like writing for comics because it's more challenging and therefore it makes it it makes it really fun. How did you break into comics? That 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 industry is uh there there's still a lot of mystery uh about it, it it seems. Uh how do how do you go about getting into that? Because it's kind of a small fraternity of people that that make these when you when you really think about it. Um but how do you go about finding an in? I, I don't know how to I, I I wouldn't even know how to give advice for somebody how to break into comics now. You know, I think I think that I was really lucky. I, I broke in at a time when it was easier. It was in the 90s, right? And um, goth comics were kind of like doing a, you know, kind of doing their thing. You know, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and Lenore were really popular. And I, you know, I was doing like a urban fairy tale sort of goth thing. Uh, it was called Gloom Cookie. And I just, I, the, the publisher, you know, really liked it. I felt really lucky. I mean, it was literally the first thing I'd ever written. And I, I mean, I hate telling the story. I mean, I love that it happened for me, but I hate telling the story because this is so often not the case, you know, like people submit and, you know, rejection is such a huge part of, of, of being a writer, you know, and I've certainly had my share, you know, and I've, I've at times felt like, you know, why am I doing this? But, you know, I just, I feel lucky that the the first comic book story that I wrote got picked up. I, I, I self-published it. And by self-publishing, I mean, I like made like copies at Kinko's, right? And I made it into my own book. I took it to San Diego Comic-Con and I passed it around. And I hoped that maybe like a publisher would be interested. And lo and behold, one was. And he asked us to, to officially submit for consideration. And I hadn't really thought much beyond the first that first little like short, I was just like, I, I honestly didn't think anybody would be interested in publishing it. So I, I literally like brainstormed the rest of the comic series on the airplane ride home from San Diego back to San Francisco, um, you know, wrote up a proposal. Um, my illustrator like did all the character designs and we did like, you know, the, you know, the storyboards and everything and we submitted it and we got lucky and he agreed to publish us. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline, Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. 
plotpins.com. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. That that is, I love hearing those stories where, uh, (laughs) you know, where you just pull the curtain back and um, it's amazing. Uh, Your new book, Cold Hearted. um, I got this book from from Disney in the mail um, several weeks ago and um, what a beautiful book. Um, just, I'm mean, just say that, um, off the, off the top here. Um, and, and I started flipping through and, uh, I, I started reading the book and then, you know, the next thing I know it's like four hours later and, and the sun has gone down and I'm like just engrossed in the story, you know, um, oh. first off, um, how did you, you kind of defined a niche, um, that, you know, looking back over the books that you've published, you have taken uh, some of these well-known Disney villains. Uh, and, and when we think back to the the heyday of, of what we think of as, you know, the, the best Disney animation movies, there there are a lot of times these reworked fairy tales and and things like that. And there are kind of a, a, a delineation. There are the good guys and the bad guys. And we don't really know a whole lot about the bad guys, except they are bad. They are evil. Um, and and you have really kind of carved out a niche in taking some of these characters that are, um, you know, very two dimensional and giving them a backstory, giving them um, a reason, giving them motivations. And and it is a it has been a very eye opening thing to see um, what you have done here. How, how did you come up with this idea? Well, I mean, growing up as a kid, I would watch, you know, the original, you know, Disney films. 
And I, I, I was asking myself why back then, you know, um, one of my favorite uh, villains, um, Maleficent, um, I would, you know, be watching Sleeping Beauty and I'm like, why, you know, why is Maleficent so mad that she didn't get invited to Aurora's christening? You know, like, is she really that upset that she got slighted, you know, at, for a party or is there, is there more to it? You know, and I mean, the same goes for the Wicked Queen from Snow White, you know, I, there had to be more than vanity happening. You know, like, I, I don't think that somebody's going to have their stepdaughter murdered because she's prettier than her, you know? And and it's like, and, and why is this magic? You know, it, the magic mirror seemed suspect to me. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I kind of yeah. felt like he was, he was behind what was going on. So I decided to make the man in the mirror uh, you know, the Wicked Queen's father, the ghost of Wicked Queen's father, who was an abusive, horrible person. You know, and it's, you look at these characters, you look at like somebody like Lady Tremaine and, you know, her daughters, Anastasia and Drusilla, and you have to ask yourself why, like what led them on this path? What are the things that happened to them that, that, that made them, you know, make the choices that they did? And that's one of the things that I love exploring most in, you know, in, in telling these stories is, is giving giving these characters a voice and agency and a reason for, you know, for what they did. So when, when you had the idea to, uh, you know, the, like you said, you know, you would have these thoughts when you were a kid watching these movies. Um, but what, how did you decide that this would be a project that you wanted to work on? And, uh, you know, how did it go from idea stage to, you know, convincing Disney to, to allow you to do that? Well, luckily, I didn't have to convince Disney. Um, Disney Disney saw uh, an editor at Disney saw uh, one of the comic books that I was working on back in the day. It was called Nightmares and Fairy Tales, um, in which I retold various fairy tales, but they were like horror comics. They were more like, you know, Grimm's, Grimm's fairy tales. Um, and they're, you know, rather bloody and, you know, very much like, you know, you know, like the Cinderella's the original Cinderella story you know, the stepsisters are like chopping their feet off so that they can fit their feet into the glass slipper. I mean, these, these stories are pretty, pretty horrific, right? So I was, I was telling those versions. So you have to imagine, I was blown away that Disney, you know, contacted me and said, hey, you know, we've been reading Nightmares and Fairy Tales and we're wondering if you'd be interested in writing any characters from Disney. And I was just like, are you reading my books? <laughs> like, do you know, do you know <laughs> how I tell these stories? And, you know, the editor that, that, you know, I was working with at the time, he was like, yes, I've, I've read all your stories and we want, you know, we want to hear your voice. And I'm like, well, I want to tell the villains, of course. So we talked about it and we decided to start the series off. Well, we hoped that it would be a series. You know, we weren't sure. Um, we, you know, did the Wicked Queen from Snow White. And we, you know, we're like, OK, let's see how this goes. If the book does well, you know, maybe we'll we'll, you know, ask you to write another one. And that's. That's how it all started. They came to me. It was like pure Disney magic. They just like appeared and were like, hey, Serena, how are we going to make your wishes come true? You know, then, you know, my my editor at the time, Rich Thomas, he was like my fairy godmother. <laughs> <laughs> well, Serena, when you look back at the, you know, the golden age of Disney and and we have these these beloved stories and these characters that we all love. Um, and even though some of the characters are kind of two dimensional and flat, like we mentioned earlier, um, how do you start reimagining uh, a care? So, it, you know, it, Lady Tremaine, um, 
how do you start kind of uh, reverse engineering and what what are the questions that you ask yourself when you first start thinking about her um you know like a you know how does a person get to this point what you know how do you start kind of peeling back the layers and taking the story backwards i usually i usually starts from like a psychological point of view right so I, I take, you know, their personality into consideration, the way that they communicate with people, their actions, you know, in, in the film, um, the way that they look, the looks that they give, the way that they dress, like everything. I mean, I kind of take it on like I would if I were to take on like an acting role because that's my past experience, right? So um, I really just, I want to become the character. I know it sounds really hokey, but I kind of, you know, try to become the character as much as I can so that it feels like that character is literally channeling their story that they want to tell, like through me. And so, you know, I mean, like Lady Tremaine, for example, I'm like, okay, she's Lady Tremaine. That means that she was married to, you know, a lord before, you know, before he passed away. And that means they probably lived in somewhere like Eaton Square, you know, in London. And so she lived in a big house and she had lots of servants. And, you know, you know, I decided that I would make her like a pretty cool person, like living in London. And, you know, maybe she was too indulgent with her daughters. And that's why they became, you know, bratty. Anastasia and Drizella are quite bratty. Um, but I decided, you know, she was just, you know, a regular person, you know, living her life. And, you know, she was like six years widowed. And she was thinking to herself, you know, I think it might be time, you know, to maybe think about, you know, wanting to find like a new companion in life. And she goes off to a party in the country, like with one of her lady friends and she meets Cinderella's father. And he is like a dashing knight. Like he's like super cute. He's smart. He's articulate, you know, and that's, and that's kind of like how it worked back then. Like you met somebody and you married them and then you get to know them, right? You know, because you, in those days, you're not allowed to like spend time alone with somebody if you're not married, right? If you're courting. Yeah. So she rushes into a marriage. She rushes off to a completely different world, right? And she, and with her daughters in tow, she gets there and it's just the worst experience ever. You know, the, you know, Cinderella's father is only interested in her fortune, you know, that her previous husband had left her. He wanted, you know, someone to babysit his daughter while he went off and did what he wanted. And he wanted somebody to clean the house and do all the cooking. And, you know, you can make your own conclusions why she ended up making Cinderella do that after he <laughs> passed away. Yeah. When when you start reverse engineering these stories and, and reverse engineering the uh, the villain uh, and, and you start uncovering motives. Um, do you think that um, in in the classic storytelling um, in, in the golden age of Disney, um, like we've mentioned, um, do do you feel like that storytelling has changed in in the last fifty years or so? Um, in that um, readers now want to know, like, what what is it that motivates? A lady Tremaine to become this villain, whereas, um, you know, maybe decades earlier, you could get away with just uh, creating a, a paper cutout of a of, of a villain. And, you know, her she has no motivation. She's just evil. And, um, you know, and, and whether there's, you know, just pure evil exists in the world or not, maybe that's a discussion for another time. But um, 
do you know what I mean? Do 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 readers expect more? Um, or our audiences more? And, and does that mean they're more sophisticated or more jaded? Um, that we need to to know these villains' backstories. What what do you think it is about about the the consumer public that has changed? I don't know that that they have so much. I mean, when when something horrible happens in the world, you know, I think the first question people ask themselves is why. Why, why did that person do that horrible thing, right? We always want to know why. And so that is the first question I ask myself when I, you know, reverse engineer these stories. I, I ask myself why, you know, why did the Wicked Queen want to kill her stepdaughter? Why did, you know, Lady Tremaine, uh, you know, turn her stepdaughter into a servant in her own home? Why was she so eager to marry her daughters off, you know, and, and, it, and I just, I, I, I think about it and I, and I, and I create my reason why, and I'm just so happy that it resonates, you know, with the readers. Um, I think that, I think that it's a natural question for, for anybody to ask. And I, I mean, I do think that, you know, the storytelling has definitely changed, but I also think that, you know, there are stories over, you know, over the history where we've explored, you know, we've explored villains. I mean, there's like picture of Dorian Gray. I mean, we got to find out that, that entire story of why, you know, Dorian Gray was a horrible person. You know what I mean? So I think stories right. like, like that have been around for a long time. Um, I just don't think it's been explored in Disney uh, until like, you know, somewhat, somewhat recently. When uh, do you consider yourself um, a, a, a pantser or a plotter or um, a, a a mixture of the two? You know, it's funny. I I was just having this conversation with author Liz Braswell, who does the Twisted Tales books. Um, oh yeah. She was asking me this question, and I was like, I don't even know what you mean. And she had to explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and and I said that I was a pantser. But then after talking, she's like, no, Serena, you're a plotter. You just plot in your head, you know? So I am a plotter. I plot in my head forever. I think about, I think about these like characters forever. I just thought that I wasn't considered a plotter because I didn't like type it out or write it down. I have it all in my mind. I mean, I have like the next four books planned like already. I know what's happening to everybody, you oh, know? That's fantastic. I yeah. That. I mean, but here's the thing though. The reason why I thought I was a pantser it's because I really let the characters take over. And sometimes I go off, off, you know, off script. You know what I mean? Like if a character yeah. wants to take me to a certain place, then I go to that certain place. I just make sure that I get to the place where I originally intended. You know what I mean? Yeah. At, at the end. Well, the, the reason I ask that is because um, with the, especially the, the Disney books um, that you're writing, uh, we know where the story is going to end. We, we know what the end point is. And a lot of times some, you start with a book and it's either a plot point or a character or whatever. And then you imagine where the story will go from there. Well, this one, we know where the story will go. It's how did we get there? That's, you know, so, um, so ha holding that end point in your mind from the very beginning, um, that has to help, uh, I would think, or does that cause more problems along the way? I think it just makes it more heartbreaking, you know, because I'm 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 creating I'm creating these characters who I I, I basically fall in love with, you know, yeah. and 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 
and I, and I know where it's going to end up. And, and that's what a lot of my readers say too. They're like, Oh my gosh, I'm reading this and I, I want a different ending for her. And I know where this is going. And, you know, my heart is already broken, you know? And, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it makes it, it makes it more heartbreaking. I think um, in terms of like, harder or easier I, I couldn't really speak to it it's just the story and it, it flows the way the way that it way that it needs to but I've cried I've actually cried while writing like certain scenes because I fell so deeply in love with the character and I hated having to give them give them their unhappy ending uh, you have tackled characters from the wicked queen to the beast from beauty and the beast uh the sea witch maleficent uh Cruella de Vil uh, and and now um you know the the villainous from Snow White um do you uh do you have plans to to keep this going who who would you tackle next Well I can't say who I'm going to tackle next um but I am working on the next novel which will be released this time next year um I will say though there are some clues in Coldhearted there's some definite Easter eggs that that will lead you into the right direction, and you know a lot of the a lot of the readers are already starting already starting to guess. And if any of them are listening, just you know read the book; it all the clues are there. <laughs> but I do I do have one thing that I can talk about that's coming out next, which is the uh, graphic novel adaptation of Evil Thing, um, the novel that I wrote about Cruella Deville. That's coming out on September 26th. Oh, I love it. You know, Disney recently uh, released their Cruella DeVille um, movie. Did Was that informed by the book that you wrote, or were you involved with that at all? No, I wasn't. That was another version of Cruella's origin. And, you know, I like to think that Cruella is alive and well, and she's living in Hell Hall. And, you know, the way that I, I wrote my book was that uh, it was like, written as a memoir that like as if Corella had written it herself and at the end of the book I revealed that you know I was her ghost writer and that I was hanging out with her in Hell Hall and she was telling me her story and so I kind of I kind of like perpetuate this on social media and I'll be like oh Corella called me from Hell Hall today and she is so pleased with the new Corella movie like Corella's happy that they're so it's been like Corella year right you know it's yes. like my book came out and then like this amazing live action movie came out and now she's got a graphic novel she couldn't be happier she doesn't even have time to think about those Dalmatians anymore she's pleased that she's getting all of this attention so that is fantastic well cold hearted <laughs> is available everywhere now when you're hearing this go grab it there's links in the show notes where you can grab it from amazon uh or go visit your local bookstore and support them uh they definitely need it serena if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do where can they find you online well, they can find me at serenavalentino.com. They can find me on Instagram at Blackbird Pirate, uh, Serena Valentino at Twitter, and the same on Facebook. Excellent. We'll put links to those as well in the show notes. Serena, this has been so much fun chatting. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Cold Hearted. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. You're awesome. I really enjoyed myself. And we'll cut it right there. And right on time. Yay! Thank you, Hank. Have a, have a great day. It was nice. Thanks, Serena. Have have a good one. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two. 
by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons. Which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous PFC Kennedy. But the Rangers... Just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us? Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us. And an early one, at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors, carrying spear and shield, other, darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channeled the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching army of the dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain, we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. 
and eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here draped about the spine where the throat should be, where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence, malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.